Brothers and sisters, hear the good news. The God of heaven and earth has made a covenant with you. It is a covenant inaugurated by the blood of Jesus, and it is an everlasting covenant. He has promised you that he will be your God and that you will be his people. It is a covenant that's legally binding, yet it is much more than that, as he has brought you into an intimate relationship with him. You are now part of the bride of Christ that has been united in marriage to her husband. You're part of the children of the Heavenly Father who has, been adopted, who has adopted us out of one family and into his. And you are part of the holy temple of God, filled in the innermost parts by the Holy Spirit. As God's people, you have that promise made sure. You indeed are God's people, and he indeed is your God. Brothers and sisters, having truly confessed our sins, God himself promises you the forgiveness of the Father, the victory of the Son, and the glory and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Believe this and rejoice. And all of God's people say, Amen. Amen. The reading of God's word this morning begins in Exodus chapter 12. Beginning in verse 1. Hear the consecrating word of the Lord. Now Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, that he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them. According to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning. But whatever is left of it until morning, you shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste, for it is Yahweh's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. And the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live, And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to Yahweh. Throughout your generations, you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, but on the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats anything leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel." And on the first day you shall have a holy assembly, and another holy assembly on the seventh day. No work at all shall be done on them, except what must be eaten by every person that alone may be prepared by you. You shall also observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a permanent ordinance. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month at evening, 
You shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. Seven days there shall be no leaven found in your houses, for whoever eats what is leavened, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is an alien or a native of the land. You shall not eat anything leavened in all your dwellings. You shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and take for yourselves lambs according to the families and slay the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and the two doorposts. And none of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning. For Yahweh will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, Yahweh will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. And you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. And it will come about when you enter the land which Yahweh will give you, as he has promised, that you shall observe this right. And it shall come about when, when your children will say to you, what does this right mean to you? That you shall say, it is a Passover sacrifice to Yahweh, who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians, but spared our homes. And the people bowed low and worshipped. Then the sons of Israel went and did so, just as Yahweh had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. We'll turn now to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. <clears throat> and begin in verse 29. Then Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. They said therefore to him, What then do you uh, do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus therefore said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. They said therefore to him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and you do not believe. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. The Jews, therefore, were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. And they were saying, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? If you would now please turn to the back of your bulletin. We'll read together as a congregation, Psalm 78. Verses 1 through 8. Psalm 78. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob 
and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose according to the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic, that is, universal and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen? Amen. Father, now we come into your presence by your invitation and because of the blood of Christ to hear your word to us. And we pray, as we ought to pray, the way our Savior prayed, sanctifies in the truth, your word is truth. This we pray in Christ's name, amen. Jesus says, 
this if I can find it. <laughs> Don't you wish you had a Bible like mine? I do not ask for these only, but for, all, for those also who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Now, I don't know if that prayer bothers you. When you look around the world, the Protestant world, with all of the different denominations and all of the nuances in Bible teaching, and each segment and each sector claiming to know the truth, you wouldn't say that's oneness. Not like the Father's in the Son and the Son is in the Father. And yet we say, well, yeah, well, we all believe in the cross. That's true. That's wonderful. That's central. But the reason Jesus is praying for this is not so that we will be perfected when he comes to get us. That's for certain. But that we will be perfectly one so that the world who's looking at us might know that God sent him and loved him and he loves us. I don't know if that bothers you. There is a kind of arrogance that floats around, and I was uh, exposed to that arrogance. I knew about it, oh, I don't know, five, ten years ago. I don't know. Someone said to me, I haven't changed my doctrine, Craig. That's what people like about me. I've never changed it. Well, I don't know about you. But if you think you've arrived at 28 in all the understanding of the Bible, then you have a problem. But that's what he was saying to me. This bothers some people to such a degree. We had a lovely couple in the church. He was in seminary at Dallas Seminary. And he became so disillusioned by the factions and differences even at that institution that he threw in the towel. He's now divorced. I don't know if he 
still would say he believes the cross or not. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, we might translate that justification. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. This is a very famous text because it is a very simple explanation of what Paul calls his gospel. It has two facets. Belief, faith, and confession. When one believes in their heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, that results in justification. Now, not all of us probably understand justification exactly the same, but close enough, I think we can say, justification is an act whereby God puts Christ, let me rephrase that, puts our sin on Christ, we call that imputation, accounts it to him, and he pays for our sin on the cross. And by imputation, he accounts to us the righteousness of Christ, so that when he looks at us through Christ, we are just. That is the simple gospel. Everyone wouldn't quite state it the way I do, and I don't want to get picky, but I, I do want to say this. If you don't believe that, you're in trouble. One results in justification by faith, and confession of the mouth results in salvation. Now, we sometimes use those words interchangeably, but we are amiss when we do it. Otherwise, Paul would just use the same words. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So when you think of John chapter 12 and Jesus, I should say John is writing about the closing of Jesus' public ministry there. And he says, nevertheless, even though he did so many signs, they were not believing in him. But a number of them believed in him, but they were not confessing him. Because 
they were more concerned about man's approval than God's approval. Now my question is, if they believed and were not confessing, are they saved? Can you believe and be justified and not be saved? Well, I'm just going to let that question just kind of hang out there. Now, as I said, there's a lot of disillusionment in the world. I was telling John, I think it was John, oh yeah, on the phone. You know, this morning when we were driving over, it takes about 20 minutes to get my house in here, and I was thinking, we have my girlfriend Alexa in the car. And I could just say or play this artist, and it starts playing it. When I was trying to think of a certain Christian artist whom I really like from California who sings hymns, and for 20 minutes I thought about it and couldn't remember who it was. That's a sign of old age. I'm still working on it. So... Uh, I read this absolutely fabulous book. It is a book that, uh, that I pre-ordered several months ago, along with some other books. Because, uh, you know, when you go on Amazon and you bought books, then they, I don't know what it looks like on your screen. I know what happens in the voice. It just starts reading a list of all books that you might like that coincide with the one you had purchased. And, of course... They know what they're doing because they get me almost every time. <laughs> so this book came up, and, and I bought it. And uh, I read it Friday night and Saturday morning. It's about 450 pages. And oh, it was so good. It was informative. Now, I don't want to offend anybody here. I speak from a certain eschatological persuasion, and some of you hold a different eschatological persuasion. This book had a title that might be offensive to some of you, but it was just a book that was exploring how dispensationalism has run its course up to this point. It was fascinating. And you would think, well, that is a monolithic theology. But lo and behold, as you look at what happened from 1830 to 2023, it's not so monolithic. It's gone through this phase, that phase. This guy's jumped in with different ideas. This guy's jumped out because he didn't like certain ideas. And it just goes on and on. And I discovered that I am heir to dispensationalism by my mother and my father. My father was a Pentecostal. I went to his church, well, uh, you know, off and on. On more when I was young, a little less when I was older. And uh, it's called the Apostolic Church of Faith. It's on the West Coast. And I, you know, I knew a little bit about this church, but I discovered from the book that there was a Pentecostal element, I mean, there still is, in dispensationalism, and there's one sector that's famous, it's called Azusa Street in L.A. in about 1906 where uh, uh, the prophecy and tongues and healings broke out. And out of that came 
my dad's church, apostolic faith. My mother, on the other hand, who wouldn't go to church with my dad, mind you, that was not right on her part. Nevertheless, she went to a Dallas seminary church. And it was through that church that I watched a film. Uh, obviously, I didn't see it. I listened to it at the church about Dallas Seminary. And I decided to go there. And I became a thorough dispensationalist. Now, this book has shown dispensational, like every theology, is up and down and, well, you know, in and out and kind of all over the place. Just like Reformed theology. And so it just makes you wonder. Jesus is praying for unity. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 10, that we should all be of one mind, one opinion. And uh, I remembered way back when it was in the 90s that John brought an article to the men's meeting from Credenda Agenda. And it was an article that I think it was entitled, You Always Think You're Right. <laughs> and it was somebody who had gotten on Douglas Wilson's case by saying to him, You always think you're right. I've, you don't know how many times I've heard that in my office. <laughs> and the thing is, of course, we all always think we're right. We don't go around saying, hey, I want to tell you something that's wrong. <laughs> we think we're right. And so I hold to this view, and someone holds to this view, and someone holds to a completely different view, and they all fall within the purview of the evangelical church. And it, you can understand this fellow who just said, hey, I'm done. You ever felt like that? I know I have. And so... From when I arrived here in 1983, and now here it is, 2023, added up 40 years. Yeah, I went through my iterations. And I don't know how long I'll live, but I'll probably learn some more from the Bible that I didn't know. I hope so. And I may change a view or two if I think the Bible supports such a position. I say all of that because I'm going to say some things this morning, some of which you may not like. There was a uh, sportscaster on one of the news channels, I can't remember if it was ABC or CBS, named Dale Hansen. And he used to do a little segment called Hansen Unplugged. And you, know, you guys know I like to watch the news, and you all think I'm watching fake news. But when he says uh, L.A. beat so-and-so 8-4, to four, I don't think it's fake. It's just the score. But he goes unplugged sometimes. He, he, he doesn't do this anymore. I don't know if he's died or what. And it's when he, something in sports perturbed him. And he wants to 
be a little unplugged so people will listen to what he says. Well, I said this a few years ago in a, in a church, I'm going to speak unplugged, and it didn't go so well. <laughs> so, needless to say, I'm going to speak unplugged. We are in Second uh, Chronicles chapter 30, and I didn't get where I wanted to last week, and uh, I don't suppose that I may get everywhere I want to this week, but this will be the last lesson on Second Chronicles 30. And Second Chronicles 30, well, let me, just, let me just paint the scene for you. You know it, you've read it, but let me paint the scene for you. So we, uh, here in a few couple of years, we're going to have been a country for 250 years and we can see that things are unraveling at the moment. We don't know what's going to happen down the road. Where we are in Second Chronicles, Israel has been in the land and has a king. Let's just say to round numbers off for 300 years. And things have come unglued because along comes a king named Ahaz. And Ahaz reigns, he had a dad who did what was right in the sight of the Lord. But he didn't do right in the sight of the Lord like David, his great, 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 great grandfather. Instead, he sacrificed children to idols. And he shut the doors to the house of the Lord. And he put up altars all around Jerusalem. And out in the countryside, he put up high places to burn uh, burn incense to other gods. And God was upset with him. And he brought in nations from the north, south, east, and west. And desecrated him. Took people captive. Then comes his son. And his son's name is Hezekiah. And Hezekiah means Yahweh strengthens. And he strengthened this man who was 25 when he became king. And we don't know exactly how long it says in the first year and in the first month. But that probably is meaning his first full year. So we don't know exactly how long. But right away what he went to doing is cleaning out the temple, opening the doors and clearing out the courtyards from all the filth and desecration to bring the people back to Yahweh God. They had been gone for 16 years. In chapter 30, he decides that it's time for a Passover. Along with some of his fellow advisors, they decide to have a Passover. And of course, Judah is... Uh, is down here in the south, and Israel's up here in the north, and they're divided kingdoms, but we're in the era now where Israel has been packed off captive by the Assyrians. They've taken a lot of people out of the land into far distant lands, and they have moved some of their own people into the land. So up, up here in the north now, they're becoming a mixed race, no longer fully Jewish. And you come to the New Testament, you end up with the Samaritans. And the Samaritans, or I should say the Jews, wouldn't have anything to do with the Samaritans. Same, happened, same kind of thing happened when they returned from exile. 
But anyway, so he decides that he's going to hold the Passover. And so he sends couriers out. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 30, verses 9, excuse me, verses 6 and 9, the couriers go out from, from the south all the way to the north, and they're going around to the different tribes, and they're giving a, an invitation from the king with an exhortation, return to Yahweh, and he will return to you. Don't be unfaithful like your fathers, and you see what happened to them this day. Their land is a desolation. And that all comes because of a covenant called the Mosaic Covenant that promised if you obey me, and it certainly didn't mean perfectly because no one can do that, but it meant if you hold fast to me, if when you sin you bring the right sacrifice, if you hold to me, I will bless you, and if you stray from me, if you're treacherous, unfaithful, I will curse you. And the curse was all kinds of terrible disasters, which is happening right now to the northern 10 tribes, and deportation. I'll vomit you out of the land because you're doing what the Canaanites did. And so there are couriers running around all over the land and they're saying, come to the Passover. If you return to me, if you return to the Lord, he will return to you. Don't be faithless like your fathers and your brothers Return to him. If you return to him, his fierce anger will be set aside. If you return to him, all your people, your children and your brothers who have been carried away captive, they will gain favor in their captors, captive sites and they will be returned back to the land. Return to him. And he will not turn his face away from you. In other words, it's an appeal. Yes, Yahweh, God, we were awful to you. And now we repent and we come back and we've been invited to a Passover. And of course, the Passover is tremendous. The Passover is what happened when Israel came out of the land. They were in bondage to Egypt, being oppressed, foreign gods thrown over them. Some of the foreign gods, they didn't give up right away. They took them with them out of that land. But at any rate, they had a Passover. And the Passover was each house had a lamb. And uh, each head of the house would slice the lamb's throat and catch the blood in a pan. And then he would take that blood and he would smear it up around the door frame of his house. And then everybody would go inside and they would eat there the lamb. And they wouldn't leave any of it until morning. And in the morning, the call came, come out. The destroying angel has passed over you. And they came out of that door, a man with his wife and his children, and they walked out of the land of Egypt and crossed the Red Sea miraculously. And as I said last week, and you need to get the picture in your mind, this was new birth. Household birth. Right? A dad walked out, a mom walked out, and... Numbers of kids walked out. Maybe some were carried out. 
they were carried out of the land of bondage, crossed the Red Sea, were, were called Moses' people, and eventually they made their way across the Jordan into the promised land. And now this Passover is set up as a memorial. When they do it once a year, on the first month, on the 14th day of the month. But in this case, the cleansing of the house of God took so much time, the 14th day had passed. So they called for a Passover in the second month, on the 14th day, based on the precedent set out in Numbers chapter 9. And this south country, who had just been disheveled by the north country and taken captive from them, invited them, these faithless people, this faithless nation, invited them to the Passover. And when the couriers ran with this news, some people laughed them to scorn and mocked them, but some of the people came. And it turned out to be a great congregation, a large assembly of people in Jerusalem at the temple. And so what they did is first, the temple had been all cleaned up, so first thing they did is they cleaned up all of Jerusalem. They got rid of the altars whereby one sacrificed their kids to a foreign god. And they got rid of the altars for burning incense, which is representative of praying to a foreign god. All of that was moved out. And then came the Passover. Well, there were a lot of people, lots of people. And uh, the priests, remember now, remember, priest is a Hebrew word that means what? Because we get the wrong impression when we say the word priest. Because David had priests in his house too, same word. It just means a servant. The priests... And the Levites, the priests hadn't cleansed themselves enough of them to be ready for this day. After all, it's been 16 years where they got nothing to do because the house of the Lord is closed up. And so they, you know, they're lax and they're, they haven't kept all the purity laws, the cleanliness laws, and they're, they're not ready. So the Levites have to help them out. And they come in to sacrifice the lamb. Well, in Egypt, each man did it himself. And at the temple, each man would slit the throat of his lamb. But of course, there's no house that you're coming out of, wait a minute, whereby you can put that blood around the border to represent, hey, this blood has taken care of my sin and I have a new life. Except the temple is constructed in such a way that when you come in the front gate, the first thing you meet is the bronze altar. And that is called the doorway. If you want to go into the temple, well, you're not allowed to go in. 
So what you do is you offer a sacrifice and it's burned on this altar and that transformed smoke is you and it moves right into the tabernacle. God takes a whiff of it and says, ah, yeah. Smells good. And your sins are forgiven. So the priests weren't ready, so the Levites had to help out. And all these people who came from the north, they've been many years without coming down to the temple. They need a thorough cleaning, but they're not clean. And so they can't come and take all their uncleanness and slit the lamb's throat. They will make the lamb unclean. And so the Levites step in and slit the throat for them and they take this pan and they catch all the blood and then the responsibility of the priest, they hand the pan to the priest and the priest takes it and throws it against the altar, the doorway. Now when you walk out, it's like new birth. Your sins are forgiven. So they did this for 14 days, I mean, excuse me, seven days. And there was all kinds of instruments, the priests blowing horns and singing and the Levites playing on the instruments with all kinds of uh, uh, might towards God, a loud voice. And everyone was filled with gladness. I have a confession to make. I'm gay. <laughs> now, this is going to come back to help us. We know what gay means, but it's been displaced to mean I'm happy about being an abomination to God. But that's not what gay means used to read literature where people were gay. They were happy, joyful. That's how these people are. Happy, joyful, so joyful that they decide to extend the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which goes with Passover, for another seven days. And we're told they extended it because, after all, Hezekiah gave 1,000 bulls and 7,000 sheep for sacrifices. And the princes of the land gave 1,000 bulls and 10,000 sheep for offerings for the land. And what those two words mean, always in the Hebrew, is a peace offering. That's what a Passover is because it's of the peace offering that you eat. But all the offerings in the Old Testament are substitutionary. They all have blood that's to be applied in a particular fashion, in a particular way, based on what the offering is. But at any rate, they extended it for another seven days. And there was never such a Passover like that Passover since the days of Solomon when the temple was finished and built and inaugurated and it extended into two weeks as well. So some 250 years later, a similar Passover. Now, there are some interesting things to observe. If you don't have your Bible open to 
Second Chronicles chapter 30. Open to Second Chronicles chapter 30. And uh, look, if you would, at verse 25. The whole assembly of Judah and the priests and the Levites and the whole assembly that came out of Israel, the north country, and the sojourners who came out of the land of Israel and the sojourners who lived in Judah rejoiced. Now, there are a couple of things to learn from this passage, and three of them I want to talk about. The first one has to do with the sojourners. This is a way of talking about a foreigner who comes into the land of Israel, and this foreigner according to Exodus chapter 12, verses 48 and 49, can participate in all kinds of things that has to do with the temple, but they cannot participate in the Passover. Not until they and all the males in their household are circumcised. Why? Because God said in Genesis chapter 17, Abram, I'm making a covenant with you and with your descendants, your offspring. It will be a sign for you in your flesh. You will be circumcised in the foreskin of your flesh. All your offspring and anyone born in your house and anyone you buy you will circumcise in the flesh. If anyone is uncircumcised in the flesh, he will be cut off from his people. Now that tells you something. Over here is Isaac, and he's a blood descendant, and he has to be circumcised. Over here is a servant that Abraham buys from a foreigner, and he gets circumcised. And now he becomes a part of the family of God. I'll be his God, and he, I, I will be a God to him, and he will be my son. Well, the birth of a nation came from the Passover. And so it's a memorial, and it looks back to the birth of a nation like we celebrate July 4th. And if you're a citizen in the United States, July 4th means something. If you're not a citizen, well, you can be a part of it. Nobody's restricting you, but it doesn't mean the same thing. You're not a citizen. But if you're a citizen, whether you were there way back in July 4th, 17, whatever, or if you migrated in and became, this is your history. And so when a foreigner is bought and circumcised, they're made part of the house, and this is their history. It's amazing. We might call it adoption. The New Testament says we're adopted as God's sons. Now, the foreigner then is a particular kind of illustration. And I want to look at that 
If you would turn to Ephesians chapter 2. It says in verse 11, of course, verses 1 through 10, they're significant. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God has made you alive. You are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Workmanship is the word for a poem. When somebody comes to Christ, they become a poem of God. But then it says in verse 11, Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ excluded from the city of Israel. It's the commonwealth. The word comes from city. And foreigners to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Okay, when a foreigner came into Israel, that's exactly where they stood. These covenants weren't made with them. Passover wasn't for them. No, they had to become an Israelite first. And then Passover was their Passover. Now just skip down, since we are already out of time, skip down to verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Okay, over here, verse 11, you're separate from God. You don't belong to the covenants. You're not part of the commonwealth. You're in big trouble. Over here, fellow citizen. Now, what does that mean? Well, I don't think there's a whole lot of dispute about what it means, although what people do with it have different consequences in theology. But what it simply means is exactly what Exodus means. In this case, you don't become a fellow citizen by circumcision. You become a fellow citizen by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, you are fellow citizens of the city with the saints. Who are the saints? Well, the saints are Israel. That's the context. All of a sudden, here's Gentiles, and here's Jews, and these guys have God's promises, and these guys got nothing, and along comes the gospel, and they believe in these two groups are made into one new man. Now, that's pretty clear. And you can see why, then. You can see why circumcision in the Bible is such an issue. 
So the Jews are saying, hey, if they want what we got, Exodus says they have to be circumcised. They can't have the new Passover birth without circumcision. They have to be circumcised. And Paul says, if you get circumcised, you Gentiles, you've fallen from grace. Because circumcision is just a sign made in the flesh. What one needs is a transformed heart. And it comes by trusting in the Christ who hung on a cross and in his body on the tree. All my sin is attributed to him. No priest involved. No pastor involved. No elder involved. Just Christ hanging on a tree. And God says, you are the sinner. And he bears the punishment for my sin in his death. And then here I am standing over here, nothing but sinner. And God says, okay, your sins have been forgiven. And now on you is all the righteousness of Christ. That is the Passover. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. So Paul's clear statement in Ephesians chapter 2, there were two, you weren't citizens, you didn't have the promises, you didn't have God, you were without Christ, no hope in the world. But now you've been brought near. You were far off, but you've been brought near with the Jewish people, and now you're one new group of people. Now what does that mean? Let's see if I can find it. I want you to turn to Galatians. Hopefully I can find it. I want you to turn to Galatians chapter 6. There, of course, Galatians has so much to say about this because it's all over being circumcised. Don't be circumcised for salvation. That doesn't work. But in Galatians chapter 6, verse 16, it says, And... Now those who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them. Okay? Mercy is God's extension of forgiveness. Peace is, hey, God's not upset with me. His anger's turned aside, and I have peace with God. Upon those who are that way, mercy and peace be upon them. And then the New American Standard says, and upon the Israel of God. Now you have this little conjunction in Greek, and as all the prepositions and all the conjunction in Greek, they, they all have several translation possibility, and it all depends on the kind of sentence it's in and how it's constructed. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a mess. So there's a use of and in English, also in Greek, called ascensive, where and is not used to add something to and to, but it's used to identify something. 
upon them even the Israel of God. Now, which is it? Well, I can't prove it to you. And Greek won't solve the problem for you because, quite frankly, it can be translated both ways. And or even. But if you look at Romans chapter 11, grafted in into the rich root of blessing, if you look at Ephesians 2, it's quite clear what it is. So what God has is one people. And Abraham was the beginning where the promise started. And in your offspring, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Sometimes it says family, sometimes it says nations. And to join Israel is made clear in the New Testament is not to be circumcised. It's to trust in Christ. Now, one last thing, and our time really is gone. So I had two more points, so may I lied. Maybe there'll be another sermon. Turn to Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. I, I just want to point out one thing. I'm reading three, three verses, but I'm pointing out one thing. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into his, uh, who were baptized into him are clothed. Let me rephrase that. For all who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither uh, slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. Heirs according to the promises, the promise. Abraham, in you, in your seed, all families of the earth will be blessed. Ah, oh, now, if you've trusted in Christ and, and you've put on that coat that's called Christ, you're clothed with his righteousness, then you are Abraham's seed not by blood, by promise. Just like a foreigner who came from the north or a foreigner who was in Judah and came to Passover. They had to be circumcised by law from Exodus. That law has passed. Now you trust in Christ. And if we could take the time, Christ, Colossians chapter 2, verse 11, is our circumcision. His flesh was cut off from the land of the living. He was circumcised. And in his circumcision, we are in him, part of him, his progeny, 
his descendants, and he's Abraham's descendant. Therefore, we're Abraham's descendant. And my friends, I'm here to tell you that all the promises given to Israel are your heritage. That's right. Wow. Because the Holy Land, oh, it was promised, the land of Canaan. But when you come down to Romans chapter 4, verse 13, that promise is extended to the earth. The meek shall inherit the earth, as Jesus talks to Jewish people in Matthew on the Sermon on the Mount. And so just look at it this way. Yeah, I mean, you all love Texas, right? So, you know, what if God said, well, I promise to you the state of Texas, you Texicans, it's all yours. <laughs> and then later on, you discover the promise has grown. I'm giving you the whole United States. Would you complain? No. Okay, so what's the essence? What's the essence? Passover is coming out through the blood, new birth. And we're joined to that Passover because the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, John chapter 1, verse 29, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world has been sacrificed. And the blood ran down from him on the cross. And it is that blood that allows Jew and Gentile. And if I'm correct, and I think I am because I always think I'm right. <laughs> if I'm correct, what the Bible's telling us, and we read it in Galatians, there is no longer Jew and Gentile. There's one new man in Christ. Two more points. Maybe we'll do them next week. Maybe we won't. Stand, if you will, and let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have sent your Son into the world to be the propitiations propitiation for our sins and we thank you that he is the Lamb of God way back when that Passover Lamb pointed to him and he is the true Passover whereby now you've passed over all our sin it's been taken care of in Christ and you've been given us precious and magnificent promises the promises you gave to Abraham who was not looking for a country on earth but he was looking for a heavenly city and we thank you that that city is shown to us in the book of Revelation whose foundation stones are the twelve prophets I may have it backwards and whose pearl gates are the 12 tribes of Israel. And this city is called the wife of the Lamb, meaning, dear Jesus, you are our husband, and you have led us out of the Egypt of sin into the heaven of bliss. We thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen.